Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. Father, we pray for your blessing on your word this morning. And we ask that you would open up the eyes of our understanding to receive everything you have to give us. We're here, Lord, ready to listen to you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm just going to jump right in. Hebrews chapter 9, let's start at verse 1 and read the first five verses of the text. Then, indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, and behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Hebrews chapter 9 begins with the writer of the Hebrews giving us a bit of the tour of this Old Testament structure known as the tabernacle. Before Israel ever built a temple in the days of Solomon, they had a tabernacle, which was basically a tent that served as a temple, a place to worship God, a place to bring sacrifice, a place to, uh, in obedience to God, serve this function of worship and sacrifice. And so it was, as it says there in verse 1, The earthly sanctuary, this tabernacle was ordained and planned by God before an earthly service. I mean, obviously, I I don't mean to belabor the point, but you see this model that we have up here on the screens for you. Now, obviously, they didn't have photographic technology. We can't show you an actual photograph, but it was real. I mean, this thing really existed. It was made of actual material. People actually entered into it. We're not talking about something that's a fantasy or a symbol or something like that. It was real. It was a earthly sanctuary. And verse two says that this tabernacle was prepared. I mean, this real building was about 45 feet long, 15 feet wide and 15 feet high. I just want you to think it could fit very easily into this very room that we have. Matter of fact, you could probably fit three or four of them in this room. It wasn't a huge building, yet nevertheless, this temple or this tabernacle, actually, this tent was very significant. And it was divided into two parts. The larger part was known as the holy place, and the smaller part was known as the most holy place, or as he says there, the holiest of all. Inside of it was something called the lampstand. This was sort of a candelabra that held the oil lamps which lit the interior of this tent. Then it had the table. This table sat in the first part. It was covered with gold. And it had the table, excuse me, the loaves of showbread upon it. In other words, those loaves of bread that symbolized fellowship with God. Then going on, verse 2 says that it has filled with the sanctuary, referring to the first part. Again, filled with these different vessels and uh, articles of furniture. Then in verse 4, it mentions the golden censer, which stood right outside the veil, almost connected with the most holy place and certainly sort of mentally and symbolically connected with it, this golden center upon which was offered incense. And then into the most holy place, the second department or compartment of this tabernacle, you had, verse 4 describes, the Ark of the Covenant. 
This stood within the holiest of all. It was a chest made of acacia wood. It wasn't very large. It could fit very easily upon this table that's right in front of you now. It had rings to insert poles through on the side that it could be carried without touching the chest itself. And inside the ark, the writer of the Hebrews mentioned several things that were contained inside. It contained the golden pot that had the manna. In other words, they actually preserved some of the manna that fell down from heaven and was eaten by the children of Israel in the wilderness. It also contained Aaron's rod that budded. That's mentioned in Numbers chapter 17. And then finally, the tablets of the covenant that were mentioned in Exodus chapter 25. These articles all were on the interior of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, many people ask this question. What happened to those things? And the answer is we don't know. We don't know how long they remained in the Ark of the Covenant. We don't know how long the Ark of the Covenant was around and existed. We do know that there is no record of the Ark of the Covenant after Jerusalem was conquered by the Babylonians. So in some way, at some time, some people believe that it was hidden and perhaps will be discovered. Some people believe that it was destroyed or taken away as a trophy. But the bottom line is we actually do not know. But then there's one other aspect of this Ark of the Covenant that he mentions. It's in verse 5 where he mentions the mercy seat. The mercy seat was actually the ornate lid that went on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And the mercy seat had upon it the artistic designs of cherubim. Now, I know we're getting close to the Christmas season and you're going to see lots of Christmas cards with cherubim on it. Don't think of a cherub as like a fat little baby with wings. No, cherubim are majestic Um, stately angels that surround the throne of God. And they're fearful and awesome in their character. And they give their existence to the worship and the honor of God. And the presence of these cherubim shows us over and over again that really what this Ark of the Covenant and what the tabernacle itself was all about was an illustration, was a model of a heavenly reality of the throne room of God in heaven. And that's what the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle were all about. Now, starting in verse 6, he's going to continue on and describe the priestly service that took place in the tabernacle. And I just want to say for a minute, if you're thinking, so what? Listen, hold on for me. The writer of the Hebrews is anticipating your question, and he's going to answer it very well. But he wants you to understand, and I'll just say this, the reality of this service That was commanded in the Old Testament. Anyway, going on now to verse six, where he says, now, when those things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Here, the writer of the Hebrews is telling us what happened in that tent. What went on in the temple or in the tabernacle? Well, into the first compartment, the priests would go into it every day. They'd go into it every day to replace the uh, bread that was on the table of showbread. They would go into it every day to make sure that the lamps on the lampstand were burning bright and that the wicks were trimmed. They would go into it every day to offer incense on the altar of incense as a demonstration of worship and prayer to God. Into the first compartment, they went in daily and did their service. Yet, 
into the second part of the tabernacle, the one that was screened off by what is known as the veil. Look at it there in verse 7. It says, but into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year and not without blood. The entrance into the second part of the tabernacle was permitted only one day a year by one man. And the symbolism was very powerful. It was if he was entering into the very throne room of God, the very presence of God, because that's what was pictured and communicated by the Ark of the Covenant. And so he went with blood, sacrificial blood, the blood of an innocent victim that had been slain to pay for the sins. First, the sins of that man, because actually he made two trips into the tabernacle every year. The first time he went in to atone for his own sins and then immediately afterwards he went in a second time to atone for the sins of the nation but this is what i want you to understand that the access into the holiest of all this second room of the tabernacle it was severely restricted you see even when somebody could enter in it wasn't for fellowship with god Do you think that the high priest went into that second area of the tabernacle, into the holiest of all? He went in there. He splashed the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He raised his hand and worshiped. I love you, Lord. Praise you, Lord God. No. When he went into it, he was terrified. Why? Because he knew that he was a sinner. And he was in the very presence of God. Matter of fact, he had reason to be terrified because by custom, those high priests wore a cord around their ankle with a rope that led outside of that most holy place. They also wore little bells around the hem of their robe. And this was the idea. When they went in there, people from the outside could hear the jingle jangle of the little bells and know, okay, the high priest is cool. He's doing his work. It's good. We see he's there. But if they heard a sudden crash of bells and then nothing, they knew God has struck the high priest dead. And then they would drag him out by the rope that was attached to his foot. How would you feel being the high priest going in there once a year? Would not your hand tremble when you held that basin of blood? Would not your throat choke up and dry up a little bit when you said those prayers in front of the Ark of the Covenant? It wasn't a joyful, free, liberating thing. It was touched with a bit of terror. Keep that in mind as we look now at verse 8 where he says, The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings and the fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Please notice this. It's very powerful and very clear there in verse eight, where he says the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was standing. Ladies and gentlemen, all that was presented there in that tabernacle And all that would later be referenced to in the temple that eventually replaced the tabernacle. All of it pointed towards a heavenly reality. Yes, there was an Ark of the Covenant on earth. But there is really a throne of God in heaven. 
And this is what he's saying. Is he saying that the way into the true holiest of all, the way into the presence of God was never really opened up by all this tabernacle service, all this priestly ritual, all this blood of bulls and goats. It could never do it. See, friends, I could put it to you this way, that the tabernacle service was beautiful and it had an important message, but it couldn't lead people into God's presence. And that's what the work of Jesus does on our behalf. That place called the holiest of all. It was still a barrier, even with the blood of bulls and goats carried with the high priest, even with all the work that he did, the barrier still stood. People couldn't fellowship with God freely. And all those things, look at it there in verse nine. It says that it was symbolic for the present time. Symbolic is actually the ancient Greek word parabole. You could say this, that the tabernacle itself and all the old covenant, all that it represented were suggestive of deeper truths. They were parables of the new covenant pointing towards it. And this is the whole point. This is the whole reason why the writer of Hebrews is stressing this. He wanted his original readers and he wants us today. To get beyond the symbols, to get beyond the rituals, to get beyond the pictures and enter into real fellowship with the living God. That's what it's all about. That's what the finished work of Jesus was meant to do. This is what God has for us in Jesus. And can I tell you that if you don't know something of that true fellowship with the living God, You're being cheated in your life and you're denying the real reason why God created you. God created you to have relationship with him. Now, look, I know that you're created for not only that. You're also created to be a a parent, a contributor to society, to have your role within the community of God's kingdom and the broader community at large. You serve many functions. You wear many hats, so to speak. But listen, the real core reason why God made you was so that you could connect with him. And if you're not fulfilling that core purpose, no wonder you're frustrated in life. It's like the thing that God made you to do and made you to experience. You are disconnected from it. And Jesus came to make that possible to fulfill the purpose that God made for you. You see, he says right here in verse 10, it's a very powerful phrase. Fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. In other words, all those things, they couldn't do it. Now, friends, there is a place for religious rituals. There really is. There is a place for religious ceremonies. And without sounding too strange about it, don't you think that that's what it is that we do right now? Is not what we do right now, gathered together on a Sunday morning, is this not in some way a religious ritual? And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it in a matter-of-fact way. Here we are in an appointed hour, an appointed day, an appointed place. We gather together. We worship the Lord. We hear about what God's doing in our midst. This is a religious ritual. And wonderful, that's great. But the real value of that religious ritual is if it puts you in connection with the living God. That's what I so desperately want for our congregational gatherings, for your individual life, for this not just to be a religious ritual or ceremony that we gather together, no, but the true value in it, the true value in our times of worship, the true value in our times of focusing on the word of God, the true value of our connection together as a community, the true value of it is as much as it connects you with the true and living God who's enthroned in heaven. 
And you know what? If you don't have it, you're being cheated. You see, we can't make it happen for you. But hopefully, as a church family, we create an atmosphere that's focused on Jesus, that's focused on his work, and we can come together here and facilitate it. Even if we can't make it happen, we can create an environment where you and I and all of us together as a community, we can come into real fellowship with the living God. But the fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation, they themselves cannot do it. No, but they can put us into a place where perhaps by faith we can really connect with the living God. I wonder if the words that I say right now sound strange to some of you. This concept of a genuine connection, of true fellowship, of partnership, of real meaning and and, and life lived with the living God. I wonder if that sounds very distant to some people in this room. If it is, if it does sound very distant... I'm almost happy for you. And I'm not happy that you feel distant from it, but I feel happy for you because you're going to be so thrilled when you come into that connection with the living God. It's going to be like going to Disneyland for the first time. It's going to be like something so new and so wonderful. And friends, all I can say is if this does seem strange and distant and if almost feels like I'm speaking a foreign language to you, then just come to God right now and tell him right now in your heart, Lord, I want to learn that language. I want to learn what that is. I really want to connect with you as you are in truth, not as others imagine you to be, but as your Bible reveals you to be. And as you are in truth, because Jesus did all this to make it possible. Look at what he says here in verse 11. It continues on that same point. He says, but Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is not of this creation. What a difference. You see, the whole point, again, is to bring us into the presence of God and the high priest in the literal earthly tabernacle. He could never do it. Ladies and gentlemen, only the high priest went to the holy place. And the whole vision to the whole nation was you stay out I'll go in and I'll go in with fear and trembling and hope I get out of there alive. But everybody else, you stay out. Do you know what Jesus did? Well, I'll tell you what Jesus did. Look at it here in verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a red heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgression under the first covenant that those who are called may receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Do you see what he's doing? He's taking this Old Testament tabernacle and all of its service and all that it speaks to and he's drawing a line connecting it to the work of Jesus which fulfills every promise and every concept that's introduced in that tabernacle. The tabernacle basically said, yes, there's a God in heaven and somebody can have a way into him, but only with the blood of redemption. But it's imperfect. The whole nation can't go in there and the one guy who goes, he goes with fear and trembling, not with joy and singing. But friends, no, 
When Jesus went in there, not with his, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood, he came to offer a perfect sacrifice. I want you to compare the difference between the sacrifice of a bull and the sacrifice of Jesus himself. Think about the ways in which the sacrifice of Jesus is superior. I'll tell you one way that it's superior. It's superior in that Jesus' sacrifice was perfect. You know, Jesus is God, and that's why he had to be God and man to lay down such a sacrifice so that it could be perfect in every way. But it's not only that, it was also voluntary. You know, every bull that was ever sacrificed at the tabernacle, it never volunteered for the duty. It was drafted into that service, and I don't think it was entirely enthusiastic about it. But Jesus, he had the choice. He volunteered for it, and it was rational. Look, you have this sense that as the bull stood right before the moment that it would be sacrificed and laid upon that altar. The bull didn't know what was going on. He knew it would be a bad day, but he didn't know anything beyond that. But Jesus, he made his sacrifice completely rationally. He knew from beginning to end. And then finally, it was motivated by love. There was no motivation on the part of an animal that would be sacrificed. It had no motivation because it had no rationality or voluntary character at all. But Jesus, he did it motivated by love for you. As Jesus went to the cross to lay down that sacrifice that would atone for our sins and set us right with God. And I don't mean this in just some weird Hallmark card sentimental way. I mean it with all my heart. He was thinking of you. He was thinking of the one that he would win, win for the sake of this great sacrifice that he would lay down that would please God the Father and accomplish our redemption. Therefore, it says in verse 12, and friends, I got to say this verse just blows me away. Look at it there, verse 12. With his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all. You see, at the tabernacle... The sacrifice was made outside the veil at the altar. In other words, they would make the sacrifice outside of the tabernacle and bring the blood there. I want you to think about this. Jesus' sacrifice for us, it was not made in heaven. It was made on earth outside the tabernacle. But then he went in some way that I can't fully explain because the Bible doesn't fully explain it. He went up to the throne room of heaven and he said, Father, it's finished. Father, it's done. Father, the sacrifice is made. The redemption is complete. The veil is torn in two. The barriers are gone. Now your people can trust in you and enter in. And it's a powerful and a beautiful thing. That's what it says in verse 12, that he entered the most holy place and he did it with his own blood. Now notice this in verses 13 and 14. He says this. For if the blood of bulls and goats sanctifies for the puring of the frying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ? Friends, can you imagine an ancient Israelite seeing a poor bull sacrificed on its behalf? Now, friends, if you don't have any sympathy for an animal under those circumstances, I think you're a heartless person. If your heart doesn't go out to some poor bull, that has its jugular vein cut and is bled out and cut up for the sake of my sin, I I think there's just something wrong with you. Who who couldn't look at that bull and say, that's not fair, that's not right, that bull didn't do anything wrong. It's my sin, and it has to die for my sin. And if nothing else, it would make you say, Lord God, I want to live a more pure life. I, I don't want so many bulls and goats to have to be killed on my behalf. 
If that would be a motivation for somebody to live a more pure life, how much more should the consideration of the blood of Jesus on our behalf make us live a pure life before him? As he says there in verse 14, to cleanse your conscience from dead works. The idea behind dead works is probably of sin in general, in the sense of works that bring death. But it can also speak of this continuation of the old covenant sacrifice, which is certainly a dead work. All the temple and all the tabernacle work was all about death everywhere, death and blood. But now because the work is finished on Jesus, it passes from a work being all about death to now being a work all about life. Because as much as I love to tell you about what Jesus did for you and for me on the cross, as much as I like to bring before you the idea that he poured out his life and made the sacrifice, you know what I like talking about even more? The fact that he rose from the dead and that he's not on the cross anymore. And that we transition from a focus upon death that marked the old covenant to now a glorious focus upon life. Let me pause here to be honest. I'm really not going to get into verse 15. We'll pick it up there next time when we're together. But I do want to point out what it says in verse 14, where he says that he does this so that we can serve the living God. That's why he's done it. So that you can connect with God and serve him. In other words, he didn't do this so that you would have a license to sin. It's shocking, but some people actually think that way. They think the arrangement works like this. Okay, look, here's the deal. I like to sin. God likes to forgive. It's a beautiful arrangement. We fit each other. No, no, no. When you've received the forgiveness of God, there's a transforming aspect to that that brings healing and power and transformation to our life. And it makes us say, no, we want to live for him. And we want to, you see it right there in the text, verse 14, to serve the living God. That's what he calls us to now. So friends, all of this points towards a heavenly reality. To Jesus' own house that God has for us to experience. Can I tell you the thing that impressed my heart so much in just preparing and praying through this message? That it's real. There's a heavenly reality that's real for us to connect with. I'm not talking to you about a fairy tale. I'm not talking to you about a legend. No, I know, I know. It makes some of us nervous because you can't measure heaven. You can't get a telescope powerful enough to see into it. You, you, you can't analyze it with some sort of uh, analytical instrument of some sort. You can't do any of that. But ladies and gentlemen, it's real. Matter of fact, I would simply appeal to your own heart and your own conscience. You know it's real. Because God created you for something greater than just this earth. As it says in the Old Testament, he's put eternity in our hearts. It resonates with us. Something so real, so true that there's this heavenly reality. And I want you to live in light of this real connection that the living God reaches out to you and offers you. If you're not experiencing that, No wonder you're discouraged. You're not living the way God has designed you to live. He's designed you to live in vital connection with his heavenly reality, with fellowship and connection with him. If you're not having that, today's the day for you to say, yes, Lord. Jesus went through all this. He was 
the serpent lifted up in the wilderness so that I could look and live and connect with the God who loves me. Father, that's my prayer for each of us. I pray that you would bring, Lord, I'm going to be so bold to pray that you would bring every person in this room, every person uh, who hears this message in some media form later on, that you bring everybody who's encountered with this text as we've looked at it today. Lord, that you'd bring each and every one of them into real connection with the living God. Not just something they know in their head, though we must know it in our minds, but Lord, something that we experience with our being. That joyful connection between man and the living God that Jesus Christ laid down his life to accomplish. Do it among us, Lord. And help us now to enter in and to worship you, the God who's really there. We praise you together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.